Uh, and if we have never met, my name is Prentice, and I get the privilege to be lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, I have been on sabbatical for the last eight weeks, and uh, today's my first Sunday back, and I'm already seeing some new faces. Uh, and so thank you, and thank you, and thank you for, for being here. And I, I really want to say that the, the applaud really goes to our staff here at Bethany West Seattle. Can we just give them a round of applause? Uh, Taylor, Hannah, uh, Megan, who is new, uh, but um, she's not here today, but she's a new staffer that we have, and as well as our volunteers downstairs right now with the kiddos, doing music, welcoming. I mean, we just have so many people that I'm so thankful for that I can be gone for eight weeks and you didn't even know. And so I, I, that's, and that's a good thing. And so I haven't done this for about eight weeks, and so uh, bear with me. I think I can still do this. But uh, we are in the series, uh, in the study of First uh, Peter, and we are in chapter 3. Uh, and today, I just want to say this. We'll be talking about what it means to be united in Christ. And I think right now, uh, there's a lot of conversations around unity uh, and hopefully this morning we can shed a little bit of light on what that means and, and really on what that doesn't mean as well. Uh, and for sure God calls us to be united, especially as a church. And so today's text comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 8 through 9. And here's what the word of the Lord says. Uh, it says, Finally, all of you have unity of spirit. Sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you've given us a hard call to love, to be compassionate, to be kind, to forgive. Not to repay evil with evil or abuse with, with abuse, but instead you call us to be united, to love, and to, and to just be surrounded and to be compelled by your spirit. When the world tells us to, to, to be divided, to be polarized, to uh, show hatred and even violence, God, you show us a different way. <clears throat> and God, may our lives with one another reflect that so the world will know that there's a different and a better way to live. And that's the way that you called us to live. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Uh, so for my sabbatical, uh, it was eight weeks, uh, but I, I was just talking to a couple people this morning and they asked me, um, do you feel rested? You know, Sabbath, sabbatical, the whole idea is to feel rested. And, and honestly, I've been thinking about that and, and my answer is not really uh, and it is kind of ironic that I, I feel a little bit exhausted, but in all the good ways. Uh, for the first four weeks of my eight weeks, uh, we sold a house, we bought a house, we moved, did house projects. Uh, and then the last four weeks, we did some traveling. We went to Hawaii with my parents uh, for my dad's 70th birthday. Uh, then we did, you know, did some trips with her, my in-laws, Maria's parents, and, and then my extended family. 
So uh, a lot of traveling, and the last week culminated uh, with a full week uh, in the South doing a solo uh, civil rights pilgrimage. So I went, flew into Atlanta, went to a few museums there, uh, drove into uh, Montgomery, Alabama, Selma, Tuskegee, spent a few days there, went up to Birmingham, spent a few days there, went up to Memphis, uh, and then came home to Seattle, got back on Wednesday night. And I'm still processing that trip. And one thing that was a shock to me that I never knew was possible was this. I never knew that I could ever say that I got sick of having barbecue. Okay? I never thought I would be able to say that, geez, I was sick and tired of eating barbecue. Not that that's all they eat in the South. I'm sure they eat more stuff. But uh, since I was in the South, I ate that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then breakfast, lunch, and dinner again. And uh, for the first part, I was not complaining. It was delicious. But I was, I was, as I was going to different museums uh, and uh, going to different learning centers, and, and actually my favorite part was just finding people to talk with. And for those of you that know me, know that's, that's strange because I'm a massive introvert. I love to be alone. I love my alone time. I love to be by myself. But there was something about being in this new place, wanting to learn uh, and meeting new people. So I remember I was going down the street in Montgomery, and one of the guys uh, who grew up in Montgomery, lived his whole 60-plus years in Montgomery, uh, asked me if I can help him out with some food to buy some lunch. Uh, For those of you that know a little bit about Montgomery, um, there's a lot of poverty there. And I said, yes, I would, under one condition, you have to talk with me. You have to eat with me. And so we sat down, and we had some amazing conversation. And, and those are the moments that I will cherish and remember. Uh, but another thing that I'll remember is going to, going to museums and museums uh, and learning more about the civil rights uh, in our country, uh, in the South, and, and really even in Seattle and the West Coast. Uh, what I learned was this. Uh, throughout different civil rights events, different boycotts, different sit-ins, and different protests and marches, there was one common denominator, no matter where uh, that event was, whether it was in Alabama or Mississippi or Tennessee or wherever it was, and, and the common denominator was this. The common denominator was that the church was actively involved in those events. And, and not only was uh, were the churches just merely involved, but oftentimes the churches were the catalysts. They were the initiators. They were the home bases uh, of various protests, boycotts, and sit-ins, and marches, and, and so forth. And I thought that was so fascinating because I think about where we have become as a church today, and, and, and oftentimes I long to be, not, not for those, that's the civil rights, the situation to occur again, but I long for the church to be that kind of place again. And because there's so much conversations around why people are so distraught or, or even have abandoned or have showed uh, resentment or bitterness towards the church. And, and I don't blame people for that. Oftentimes I feel that myself oftentimes as well. But I want to say, and what I was reminded of was this, that the church 
was the initiator of the civil rights movement, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes. The church was about doing good things. The church was about pursuing justice and bringing hope and encouragement and peace to where there was discouragement and oppression and marginalization. I've been saying, oftentimes we... we, resent the church, and we've had bad experiences with the church. But I plead with you, please do not give up on the church. And please do not mistake the church that is centered around Jesus with the church that is centered around, dare I say, evangelicalism, or better yet, even this nationalism that has been so intertwined with the church. This is not the church that was alive and well, especially in the 60s, pushing for justice. Now, in, nine, in December of 1955, many of us are familiar with the name Rosa Parks. She was arrested for not giving up her seat to a white man and who was ultimately arrested because she would not move. This led to a massive bus boycott in Montgomery where they... African-American community of Montgomery refused to ride the bus. This was about 75% of the population in Montgomery. And this protest, this boycott, this bus boycott went on for over a year. Can you imagine 75% of the typical bus riding population stops riding the bus? Can you imagine what that does really to the, not just the, the bus system, but the economy. It was to send a message about what was happening was not right. The discrimination, the segregation was not right. The special preference about who gets to sit in the front of the bus and the back of the bus based on skin color was not right. And so this boycott was to say, things need to change. And it took over a year But this impact wasn't just an impact on the economy and the bus system, but it was an impact on the people who were involved, the participants that were involved in the actual boycotts. Again, this was a city, a town that was uh, really living below poverty line. And, And many of them, or most of them, needed a way to get to work. To, 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 make an, uh, to make an impact just to survive, just to make ends meet, just to have food on the table, a roof over their heads. And so what happened? Well, what did they do? Well, here's what happened. The churches came together, all the churches from different neighborhoods. And I never knew this, but it's called the rolling churches or the rolling taxis, where the churches came with their church vans, where people, the parishioners, the the clergy, they brought their own personal cars, and and they created this bus system, this transportation system, so when people boycotted the bus, they still had an opportunity to get to work, to see family, to go to the grocery store, and to come back and to live a normal life. The rolling churches, the churches from all different neighborhoods came together. Did these churches all have everything in common? No, not really. Did they even agree everything theologically and by doctrine and beliefs and convictions? No, probably not. As a matter of fact, it's well known that some church leaders were not even fond of one another uh, in the same neighborhood. 
Nothing different in 2022. Different denominations, different hearsay, different this, different that, different gossip. It wasn't, maybe not nearly as bad, but it wasn't different here in the 50s and 60s. And yet, they still came together under one cause, and that was a fight for justice, knowing that God's heart was for the poor, the marginalized, and that God wanted something better for the city. And so they, they put everything aside. They became united in Christ and provided ways for people to live a better life. And again, because of that, because that, they were able to do that, a year later, the laws changed. And the segregation and the favoritism around the bus system was gone. Well, not completely, but legally it was gone. Again, they differed. The churches had different opinions, thoughts, convictions. They were even different when it came to social economics, job titles. And yet they came together under the banner of Christ. Now today... I feel like we've significantly lost the ability to look beyond our own desires, even our own theologies sometimes, our own beliefs in God, our own attachments, our own political affiliations. We, we, we've, we've lost the ability to look beyond who we voted for, for the sake of something bigger than of ourselves. Today, we've significantly lost the ability to even just disagree with one another. To instead, uh, of, uh, instead of choosing love and to see the best in somebody, despite the differences that we may have, we've gone towards being more polarized and divided. I see this almost every day in my social media feed about people bickering back and forth about, I see this in news sources that have gotten so far extreme, both to the left and to the right and everything else. And I've seen friendships and families being torn apart by political differences. We've seen communities at each other's throats because we disagree on what to do with masks. I had a friend last year where his own father refused to go to his own son's, my friend's, wedding because, my, because his son and the bride, his wife, required that all guests would be vaccinated or just wear a mask. And the dad refused to go. And to this day, they have not spoken to each other. Now, here's the deal. I'm not saying that convictions aren't good. As a matter of fact, we should all have convictions. In fact, many of us, we, we should have strong convictions around God, about what God calls us to do. But here's the biggest difference, that if we're not careful with our convictions, our strong convictions move from merely convictions to idolatry. I want to say that again because I think that's so important that oftentimes our strong convictions can move from just merely conviction to idolatry, especially when Christ is not at the center of said conviction. 
Because here's the deal. Your identity is not about who you voted for or what you voted for. Don't let the media fool you. It's not. Your identity isn't about how much money you make. Don't let the world convince you I'm wrong. Your identity is not about where you live, what you do, what your job title is. Your identity is in the fact that you are a child of God, the living God, the creator of the universe, who sent his son Jesus on our behalf. You are the son and daughter who is fearfully and wonderfully made, period. That is your identity. And with that new identity, God calls us to look different in the world, to do things different. You know, I've been reading this book called The Resilient Faith by uh, this professor from Whitworth named Gerald Sitzer. Uh, And he talks about, he's a church historian, and he talks about Christians uh, have always been about the third way, about an alternative life especially in the first century when you really only had two choices. One, either bow down to Caesar and be part of and and bow down to the Roman Empire, or you completely isolate yourself, even physically, just move to the desert. And we have the, 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 the Qumran people, the desert people, and really those were the two ways to live. Either you isolated yourself or you completely was enmeshed with the, the, the politics and you bowed down to Caesar. And, and what Professor uh, uh, Gerald Sitzer was arguing that when the, the birth of Christianity was about not choosing either side and choosing the way of Jesus, taking on the identity of Jesus, becoming and moving this third way, saying no to the far left, saying no to the far right, saying no to the empire, saying no to isolation, and saying yes to this new way that Jesus has called them to live. That's always been the calling and, and, and hope for the Christian community. To be different, to look different, to live different. And so what's one way that we can do this? Peter writes, is to live harmoniously with one another. You want to look different? You want to not choose the left, not choose the right, not choose this, not choose that, not go on to the latest trend, not go on to social media and picking a side. You want to look different? Here's how you can look different. Hey, here's what's different. While the world is fighting over whatever, about masks, about church, about this, or about that, how about this? How about you live in harmony with one another? When you live in harmony with one another, then people will know that you are different. You're not left, you're not right, you're not one, two, you're not A or B. You're right here living the way that God has called you to live. It will always just look different. And the biggest way it can look different is to just live harmoniously with others, even in the midst of differences that we may have. Now, for many of us, including myself, we need to recenter Jesus in our lives. For far too long, the, the, the centerpiece of our lives, of what directs us, of what pushes us, has been guided by social media, has been guided by the news, has been guided by uh, hearsay, has been guided by uh, our own echo chambers, has been guided by you know, the news station, or whatever it is. And it's time for us to recenter Jesus in our lives. And, and it's the agenda of Christ that pushes us forward and nothing 
else. You see, God speaks through Peter and gives us really a checklist on what we can do to to live differently and what it would look like to have Christ at the centerpiece of our lives. Because remember, strong convictions are good and it's okay and it's necessary but not if it takes place of where Jesus needs to be in our lives, which is at the center. And I believe so many of our relationships, no matter what it is, your marriages, your friendships, your roommate situation, your, your coworkers, I believe that when we take heed to the words of Peter, through God, relationships can be strengthened even reconciled, and even flourish. Now, you have to understand that during uh, first, when Peter was writing his letter, First Peter, uh, it was written somewhere around the mid to, to early, sorry, mid, early to mid-60s A.D. And this was a time when the, most of the ancient Near East was under Roman occupation. And, and the Roman emperor at the time was a man named Nero. And he was infamous because of his treatment towards Christians. He saw Christians as a threat because many of them wouldn't bow down to to Nero, to him. And so Nero uh, gave out very strong and harsh consequences to those who wouldn't bow down. An ancient historian named Tacitus writes this. uh, They were Christians. They were covered with the skins of beasts and devoured by the dogs. Tacitus, he also writes, Christians were fed to lions. And Nero often lit his own garden parties with the burning carcasses of Christians. They were used as human torches. Also, there were accounts of Nero who crucified Christians. Remember, crucifixions wasn't just Jesus. It wasn't just unique to Jesus. It was uh, a punishment, a common punishment of the day. And Nero crucified Christians in busy marketplaces so people would know how to behave and how not to behave. Well, in 64 AD, there was uh, something called the Great Fire of Rome, which is kind of self-explanatory. There was a huge fire in Rome, the capital city, the epicenter of the Roman Empire. It was burned down. Two-thirds of the city was burned down. Marketplaces, businesses, people's homes, all gone. And and tradition has it that the person who started the the great fire of Rome was actually Nero himself, the emperor of Rome, because he wanted to burn it down and, and restart and rebuild Rome exactly the way he wanted it, not the way he adopted it. But what really happened was that Nero blamed the Christians for the travesty. Even though, again, tradition has it, Nero started the fire himself. He blamed the Christians. And so that way, the whole city, really the whole world known, would be against the Christians. They were ostracized. They were outcasted. They were persecuted even more because there was this rumor that the Christians were the ones who burned down Rome, who started the great fire of Rome. And so many of the Christians, they were exiled, meaning they were kicked out of Rome, and and they were dispersed uh, into Asia Minor, which is considered uh, modern-day Turkey. 
And they were living in this foreign land after being kicked out of their hometown because of a lie that Nero spread about these Christians. And in this new land, word spread, and they were under, again, persecution in this new land. Again, in this new land, in this foreign land, they were ostracized, they were outcasted, they were looked down upon. They were seen as troublemakers. And it was in this backdrop that Peter writes his letter. Peter says, as he writes, he says, I know that you've been through a lot. You've been through persecution. Your people, our people, have been killed. There's rumors being spread about you. You're in this foreign place. You're not finding love in community. People are tormenting you yet again. But in this context, Peter says, yet still be different towards one another and to the people around you. You can imagine what Peter is saying in between the lines. I know that you want to seek revenge. I know that you want to show hatred towards hatred. I know that you want to, if they hit you back, you want to hit them back. If they say mean things about you, you want to say mean things to them. If they spread rumors about you, you want to spread rumors to them. Peter's saying, I know all these. You've been through a lot, and I don't blame you. You want to do all these things, but look different. Be different. He says, be like-minded. Now, this is the word called homophrone. It's a Greek word. Be like-minded is a Greek word called homophrone. It's where we get the word harmony. He says, be like-minded. First and foremost, be like-minded. Be in harmony with one another. You see, it's more than just about being united about the same beliefs, having the same opinions, having the same convictions. It's not just about agreement. It's far more than that. Commentator of 1 Peter, Ramsey Michael, he's a professor and writer, he says this. He says, both Paul and Peter want their readers to Think alike, not in the sense of holding identical opinions, but in the sense of being agreeable and sensitive to each other's concerns, and so to be united in a common spiritual bond. Again, being united in Christ. You don't have to have the same opinions, but you have to be united in Christ so that wherever you're at, people will know that you're living a third way. And I think this is a good place to note that there is a distinction between unity and conformity. The calling is not to conform or even to abandon our own intellect. Again, it's about centering or recentering Christ in our lives. This call isn't just to be united with our own convictions and our own opinions and our thoughts. It's about being united in Christ. Anytime the Bible talks about being united, don't forget it's about being united in Christ. It's not just get along. It's not just about think exactly alike. It's not about just forget about what you've learned. Just just think identically with, with one another. It's about being united in Christ. It means as people pursue Jesus and God's heart and what God wants, the hope and the desires, ultimately, they might be this far apart, but as as they pursue Christ more and more and more and more, that they would meet at a place where Christ is at the center and they would be able to live in harmony and united in Christ with one another. 
What does Jesus want for us? And again, that doesn't mean just agreeing with everything and everybody. In fact, there are times where we should be in disagreement. In fact, we should be united in the fact, in the things that we disagree on. We should be united in the fact that we should always be against racism. We should be united in the fact that we should always be against slavery. We should be against human trafficking. We should be against murder and bigotry and sexism and and, and homelessness and poverty. Not against people experiencing that, but against that system that creates that. We should be against abuse of any form. Nowhere in the Bible says that we should be just, you know, for any of those things. Or in agreement with any of those things. There are things that are counter to what Christ is teaching. There are things that are counter to the nature of God. There are things counter to the love of God and how God wants the world to be. And those are the very things that we should be united against. And it's okay to be against things. I want us to make sure that that is clear. That unity does not mean conformity. It means being united in the things that Christ wants us to be united for and united against. And maybe our prayer this morning is, God, show me what is what I'm holding on to, what I need to let go of. God, show me what I need to be against. And give me the courage and the bravery to speak out against that. God, show me what I need to be for and give me the courage and the bravery to be for that. God, show me, reveal to me, put away what I've put in the center. My own politics, my own family systems, these aren't bad things. But God, show me how to put that aside, put you at the center, then may I live my life according to that. I think your relationships would change. I think our lives would change. In 1965, in March of 1965, there was a march from Selma to Montgomery to protest the unfair voting rights. And many of us may have seen this movie called Selma in, I think, 2015-ish. Uh, and what they, to make a long story short, there was a lot of there was about 600 activists who decided to protest and march from Selma to Montgomery to uh, speak about the unfair voting rights. That was about a 50-mile stretch. Now, right outside, now, now right in Selma, to get out of Selma, uh, not even a mile away from their starting point, there was a bridge called the Edmunds Pettus Bridge. And, and, and they were warned not to go across the bridge by law enforcement because they would be met with violence. Well, uh, they ignored that call, and, and they went anyways. And so on a Sunday, they crossed that bridge. On the other side of the bridge was law enforcement and other folks. And they, they violently attacked the protesters. So they went back. And, and by the way, that was called Bloody Sunday because it was a very bloody Sunday. And, and Dr. King was in the midst of that. Dr. King came and he said, we're going to go across again. And everyone's like, yeah, we're going to go across. We're going to go to Montgomery. We're not going to be held down by the oppressors ever again. And Martin Luther King Jr. says, well, hold on. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the bridge, but we're not going to cross all the way. We're going to kneel down on one knee, and we're just going to pray. And we're just going to pray. And so many people were upset with Dr. King because they were like, no, we need to show them that we're strong. We're not going to be held down. We can do this. 
And yet they listened to their leader. They prayed together. They spoke with one another. And ultimately they did go on that bridge and they prayed. They were united. Even though they had difference of opinions, even though they didn't always get along, even though they didn't always think the same, they were united to pursue a cause that they believed that God was calling them to pursue. Be like-minded means be, live in harmony with one another, but that harmony comes from being united in Christ. I'll move, this, I'll move through this really quickly. Secondly, it says be sympathetic. The word sympathy comes from the Greek word sympathes, literally to mean to suffer with. To suffer with. Whenever we're in conflict with one another, what does it look like to suffer with the other? In other words, what does it look like for us to be putting ourselves in their shoes? Now, before villainizing, making someone the villain, making ourselves the hero, before villainizing somebody for their beliefs, for their perspectives, what if instead we move first not to judgment but to curiosity? What's their story? Why do you think this way? Not in a condescending or a pejorative way, but why, where do you get this from? What was your childhood like? What have you been through? What kind of trauma have you experienced? And, and not, just the question, not just to question this curiosity for other people, but what about questioning this kind of curiosity for ourselves? What have I been through? What, if, what leads me to believe what I believe? I believe when we do this and hear each other's stories, experiences, we can't help but to have compassion. We can't help but to see the human in somebody rather than hatred or whatever title that you might have. Again, I say this over and over again. Brene Brown, psychologist, writer, she says that it's impossible to hate people up close. What if we got up close with people? I bet it would be really hard for us to hate that person. Peter says to love one another. The original word for love, there's so many words in the Greek for love, agape, uh, eros, uh, phileo, so many different words, but, but Peter specifically uses the word philadelphoi, meaning a brotherly or sisterly love. What if we actually saw each other as siblings? Yes, siblings fight. I know that I fight with mine. Yes, siblings don't always get along, but at the end of the day, siblings, you know that we love each other, that nothing can break the bond of this love, especially in the ancient Near East where family was everything. So not only what if we decided to live in harmony with one another because we want to be united in Christ, what if we wanted to suffer and to put ourselves in the other person's shoes? What if we wanted to love one another by seeing them as a brother and or a sister? Uh, and then it says, be compassionate. I love this word, compassionate. It's this Greek word, eu splagnoi. Eu splagnoi. Ironically, the word eu means good, and splagnoi means entrails and guts, like the kidneys and the livers. In the ancient Near East, people believed that it's the gut where you felt 
tenderness for one another, where you felt that just like that warm feeling, you know, like I got that feeling in my stomach, or my heart is feeling good, or my heart is feeling bad. It's not the brain they believe. You know, of course, neuroscience, we know things differently. In the first century, they believed that all of our feelings and our emotions came from our guts, from our entrails, our liver, our kidneys. I don't know if that's where they're at, but there, that's where our feelings and our emotions came from. And so what Peter is saying, have good feelings and emotions and tenderness towards the other, even if you see them as an enemy, even if they disagree with you. Be tender-hearted towards them. Be compassionate. Be soft. Don't be aggressive. Be willing to listen. Be willing to forgive. Be willing to seek forgiveness. Let your guard down. Be vulnerable. Be honest. Be genuine. Just be soft and tender in your gut with even those that disagree with you. And even those that think you're wrong in many different ways. I bet your relationships would change if we can just show that. Be humble. We have our own baggage. Let's not lie to ourselves. We have our own baggage. And that's not a bad thing. It's, what, it's, it's called story. We have our own stories that we bring to the table, to any table. We have our own stories our own faults, our own sins. And there's something about acknowledging and naming, not just acknowledging, but naming, not just pushing it under the rug as if it never happened, not pretending our stuff doesn't smell. There's something about naming our own issues and our own faults that helps us just receive the stories of others. It says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but repay with the blessing. Again, that doesn't mean be a doormat. It just means don't reciprocate evil with evil. If someone punches you, it doesn't mean you just sit there. It just means you don't punch them back. But there's other subversive ways. Maybe it's to offer forgiveness. Maybe it's to offer a hug. Maybe there's someone you disagree with and you offer them coffee. Maybe there's someone that just yells at you. You offer them encouragement. Maybe there's someone you don't get along with, but you bless them somehow. I think our duty and our task is to pray, to be driven by the Spirit, to ask God, what is from you and what is just me? And maybe for some of you, it's asking the hard question, who do I need to reach out to today? Who do I need to bless? Who do I need to be tender-hearted to? Who do I need to be united with in Christ? Who do I need to just reframe how I view that person? You are not an enemy. You're a brother. You're not someone I hate. You're my sister. You're not a, I'm not against you. I'm for you. Out of these things, what is God calling you to do? Maybe it's more humility. Maybe it's just naming our own stuff. There is a saying that hurt people hurt people, and I think that's true. But maybe what if we deal with our own hurts? Would we hurt other people less? I think so. So as I invite the band up and as we enter into a time of reflection... 
Would you just ask yourselves those questions? Who are the people, again, that I need to be compassionate towards? How can I be more humble? How can I keep Christ as the center so I'm not just bickering and protecting the secondary and third and fourth issues? But first and foremost, I'm protecting Christ as my center. God, thank you for this church. God, thank you for the church. Bethany West Seattle plays a small but mighty part in your kingdom, and we thank you for that privilege. But God, there are some things in our own lives that we have to wrestle with. Oftentimes we have failed to love, we have failed to be tender-hearted, we have failed to be compassionate, we have failed to forgive. And I pray that for myself. I am the chief sinner when it comes to that. So God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive me? And would you show us a better way to live, a third way, on an alternative life to what the world teaches us? About, about revenge, about hatred, about violence, about being polarized, about being divided. God, no, teach us a different way, and that's your way being led with you at the our center. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue in worship. Mm-hmm.